This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there, there's a passenger in here to lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the next execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back to the stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to them. That was one of, the, one of the problems we ran into, because you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place, smoking and joking and drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd have to plan in there to... to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome everybody to a live episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who resided and worked there. My name's Anthony and my co-host today is not Sky, it is in fact Samuel Anderson. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Welcome Sam. How's your tree for going? It's it's been going good. I'm I'm sad. Sky could not be here. I know Sky is sad not to be here, but I'm I'm happy to be stepping in those shoes at least for one event. Yeah, so excited to open up Pod for it this week. There's so much going on. I appreciate all of you coming here. And actually, Sky left everybody a message here. So let's turn it over to her. Hi everyone, I just wanted to send a quick video. Um, I'm currently in kind of sunny Los Angeles. Um, right behind me is the library to USC. Um, so I'm here doing my research. Unfortunately, I can't be there uh, with you guys at Treefort this year, but I know that Sam is gonna do such an excellent job. Um, and Anthony, of course, you know, always does his thing really well. So um, I am sad uh, to miss you guys and um, always sad to not be able to tell um, an amazing story from the uh, men and women who served time in the penitentiary. But um, I hope Treefort goes so well this year. I hope all of you, um, if you have a chance, have seen some really cool bands. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Treefort pass and just came to see us, thank you so much. We always appreciate your support. So um, until I see you guys next time, do your own time and do your own number. She's just, you know, slacking off, getting her PhD. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> well. Yes, lucky skies in L.A., but we have some great stories for you today. Uh, we are going to tell you about uh, the highs and lows of Boise Music Week and a murder to the soundtrack of an old Idaho country dance. Ooh. Sam, you have any uh, words? Yeah, uh, buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Boise... You may not know this, but it has a very uh, unique history connected to music festivals. We have one of, if not the oldest municipal, non-commercial outdoor music festivals in the country called Boise Music Week. And it carries the torch as the longest running event of its kind in the nation. In May 2022, Boise Music Week actually celebrated 101 years of free musical events in the Treasure Valley. It began here in 1919 under Eugene Farner. Eugene was a musical prodigy from New York City who served as a musical director throughout his life. He traveled west and landed in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where he opened a studio in 1910. While in town, he actually served as the choir master at St. Luke's Episcopal Church 
and was urged by the bishop to move to Boise, where he took the position of musical director and organist at St. Michael's Cathedral. World War I broke out, and Eugene actually joined the army and served for 14 months. When he returned to Boise, the congregation sprang to work. The February 23, 1919 Idaho statesman quoted that Eugene, quote, was particularly pleased with the reception accorded him by the spontaneous coming to life of his two choral societies immediately on his return, end quote. With the war over, the 1918 influenza pandemic subsiding, and peace and reconstruction on the horizon, Eugene wanted to bring the city together through the power of music. He was quoted in this article saying, quote, as a real and lasting peace draws nearer, the thought of a large peace and memorial musical festival looms larger in many minds. In conjunction with fitting memorial of the struggle, a music festival will show forth in a splendid way the honor the Boise Valley feels for heroes living and dead, end quote. Boise Music Week was performed in front of the Capitol Building on three large wooden stages built in a semi-circular form and with a seating capacity of 4,000 people. This included 2,000 seats on the state capitol steps. The Boise Municipal Band, the Festival Chorus, the Boys Glee Club, several church choirs and local musicians would fill the city with music throughout the week. Lavish sets were erected for performances and for pageants, which were typically patriotic or historic plays written by locals. And one day of Music Week was actually dedicated to um, the compositions of local Idaho composers, which is pretty amazing. This was a massive week of music planned and coordinated by a small group of passionate music lovers and event organizers. It began as the simple musical festival on the Capitol Steps and evolved into a massive performance showcasing all types of local talents from poets and theater to flower and horse shows. Sound familiar? <laughs> Each music week ended with an evening parade that the whole town was expected to participate in that strictly required everyone to fashion a handmade lantern, quote, swung from a leafy bough. No broomsticks. Very adamant. No broomsticks allowed. Prizes were offered to the best lantern design based on the most original and the funniest. And in 1923, 2,000 lanterns were counted and judged in this just, just so funny, imagining people in downtown Boise with these little leafy boughs, these little lanterns that they've created, just a parade through the street throughout the evening to end this, this week. And you weren't allowed to just stand. Everybody had to participate. They had people like minders going around saying, jump in line, jump in line. <laughs> it's really funny. It was really entertaining doing this research. Uh, in May 1921, Music Week was held for the first time in New York City. Two years later, in 1923, New York proclaimed that they held the nation's first music week. <laughs> Thank you, that's my wife, I asked her to say that. <laughs> Boise Mayor E.B. Sherman actually saw the newspaper that noted this and he immediately called for local citizens to find a program from May 1919 to prove that Boise held the first music week. His pride was touched by these newspapers' assertions. So, Miss W.J.A. McVetty, a uh, Boise woman, found a program from 1919, turned it over to the mayor, and he shipped it off to New York to prove that we were, in fact, the first. A letter returned from the secretary of the organization thanking our mayor for the program and a note that Boise was most likely the first, but this organizer, you know, he still had to check all these other cities. By uh, June, it was announced that Boise was, in fact, the first city to host a music week. 
Several columns were dedicated to talking about this movement launched in Boise, which, quote, took on somewhat of the nature of a real Western roundup, end quote. And it's this fascinating article that, like, documents the beauty of Boise. Quote, it has remained to a large extent, despite its agricultural, mining, and sheep industries, a romantically beautiful wilderness, but lightly touched by the wheels of progress or the fliver tourist, end quote. You know what a fliver is? No idea. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird term. It was an old-fashioned term for, for a car. So we're all, we all drove our fliver here. But mostly it refers to, like, junky cars. And mm. they, yeah. So there, there's a lot of, like, East Coast demeaning, you know, you know, poor little tiny little Boise throughout all of this. But I still feel proud when I, when I was reading all this. The author said that Boise's Music Week was successful due in large part to the large collection of local community organizations taking part, as well as the founder, Eugene Farner's, dedication to making it this great community event. The author praised and almost seemed surprised by the musical choices, including compositions by Elgar, Tchaikovsky, Frederick Converse, and even the event organizer Eugene Farner's own composition, The White Buffalo Maiden, which premiered in the Boise High School Auditorium in 1923 and told a traditional Teton Sioux tribal story. It was composed almost entirely with tribal melodies and rhythms. Uh, so if anyone can find that score, I'm dying to, to recreate some of it. It's, it sounds amazing. The author described the people of Boise as a traditional Western picture, and I believe today we can actually see a lot of similarities more than a century later. Quote, there were the tall, lean ranchmen, or the prospectors of the West, with their rugged, angular features and bony frames. <laughs> there were their womenfolk, tall and strong. There were the farmers with their wives and daughters, down from the hills for the first time, perhaps in years. Almost all of them came in battered motor cars, these flippers, loaded to the dusty tops with supplies for a week's camping out. No hotels for them. <laughs> their auto robes, homemade bed, quilts of fearful and wonderful design, and the women wearing boudoir caps. There were miners on leave from Old Coeur d'Alene, scene of the famous gold rush of the 60s, of course the 1860s. There were numerous Chinese and Japanese and their families, sharers in the town's civic pride. There were Spanish folk who responded with enthusiasm to the festa spirit of Music Week, reminiscent of their motherland, some of whose daughters were notable contributors to the dancing. And there were representatives from the Basque colonies scattered over Idaho in the West, dignified, handsome, law-abiding, and exclusive, who moved among the gaieties of Music Week with silent enjoyment and departed again to their homes as smiling, dignified, and quiet as they came. There were three Indians sent up from the mission at Pocatello, stolid, unimpressed, and stoically concealing, no doubt, real bewilderment. There were the overdressed, good-natured, and vain soubrettes from Passing Roadshow, traveling vendors, fakirs, the small merchants of the neighboring towns and their families in overdone costumes. There were even the smart set, who came, listened for a short period, and departed elegantly appointed in appointed motors. There were soldiers from the fort, and heaven bless them, there were the cowboys. <laughs> a picturesque few of the men a mere handful left in the rapidly changing West, end quote. So there's, there's this whole long paragraph about the cowboys. Uh, this is the description, and I, I think they were quite taken with this cowboy. Uh, quote, tall, slim, splendidly proportioned, with a fine head set on straight shoulders, clear-cut 
features, flashing dark eyes, and hair black as midnight. He would have been the delight of any artist. <laughs> who doesn't have a thing for cowboys, right, Sam? <laughs> oh, who, it's a lasting tradition for a reason. Yeah, that's right. This year, Voicing Music Week is actually scheduled May 2nd through May 14th, and performances will be at Jump, at uh, Kleiner Memorial Park, Bora High School, St. Luke's Cathedral, the Egyptian Theater, Cathedral of the Rockies, and the Morrison Center. So check that out if you don't get enough music during Tree Fort. Now, I know you're wondering, Anthony, we're here to hear some stories about the old pan about crime. Well, here we go. The concerts during Boise Music Week were free, but proceeds actually went to recently released prisoners through a group called the Society for the Friendless. A large advertisement for a performance at the Congregation Church during the final days of the very first Music Week stated, quote, no admission charge, no tickets required, silver offering received for benefit of the Society for the Friendless, organized to aid persons discharged or paroled from the Idaho State Penitentiary, end quote. So this Society of the Friendless was a philanthropic group focused primarily on helping recently released residents get back on their feet upon leaving prison. And they provided temporary housing, they helped residents find work, and even helped the family of of prisoners uh, who often lost their sole source of income when that person was incarcerated. And I couldn't find how much money was collected at the concert, but I can say that two weeks after the performance, Idaho State Penitentiary Warden William Cuddy became a director on the Society of the Friendless's Board of Directors, along with Chief Justice William M. Morgan of Boise and Judge Hyde of Pocatello. So these very prominent individuals, they're trying to help support people and get them back on their feet, which I thought was pretty cool. Boise Music Week was dedicated to community service, civic pride, local values, and unifying the diverse cultures that make up this city. Of course, while thousands celebrated at the steps of the Capitol, others were lurking in the shadows looking for an opportunity. (laughs) A prominent local man named Gustav Schallman, a member of the El Cora Shrine, was attending the second night of Boise Music Week with his family on May 29, 1922. They parked their large six-cylinder touring car near the Capitol building to attend drama night on the steps of the Capitol. Boise High School students performed a morality one-act called Dust of the Road, followed by a comedy called Suppressed Desires, (laughs) which was a parody about psychoanalysis and Freud. And finally, a musical called Rosemary Risks It. Uh, Apparently, it wasn't a very great performance, but... You know, there's high school kids. At the end of this fun performance, the Shalman family left Music Week on a bad note. They could not find their vehicle. Three days later, it was discovered west of Boise on a valley road. Quote, two tires and two spare tires had also been removed from the car. So they had the vehicle, but they're missing three tires. Stolen car tires and uh, vehicle accessories were really good business at the time. And uh, I found an article from the Twin Falls Daily Times in 1922 that valued each car tire at $15. It's our, it's our favorite game here. Sam, how much do you think $15 is today with inflation? Well, what year? 1922. I, maybe five or $600. Wow. That's, too much, too much? That's too much, actually. I'm surprised. I, it's $268. It's always more than cents. I think it is. I <laughs> went too high. <laughs> it's so hard. It's, it's impossible. Uh, so three tires, that's like close to $900 wow. that, were, that were stolen. 
Unfortunately for the Shalmans, they never found resolution from this sour note. I found many arrests, small fines, and a short sentence for local tire thieves that spent some time in the Ada County Jail in 1921, 1922, 1923, He's parked his Nash Roadster on the corner of 9th and State Street to attend the largest concert during that year's unseasonably cold music week to see rivals from the Nampa Chorus perform Belshazzar. It was there on the Capitol steps. And when he returned to his car, surprise, it's nowhere to be found. Police are on it. The next morning, the car was discovered three and a half miles southeast of Mountain Home on the highway near the railroad tracks. It was totaled and, quote, so badly damaged, the officers believed its driver could not have escaped injury. Now, this photo I have on display, that is a crash that happened in Caldwell, but it's similar to probably the scene that they would have come across. This beautiful, practically new Nash Roadster was upside down and almost entirely demolished. There were no reports to the local doctors in Mountain Home or any Boise hospitals of any injuries or to local residents that anyone came and officers tried to track down some footprints, but it had rained overnight, so all evidence had been removed. Earlier that spring, a man serving a 45-day jail sentence for passing worthless checks named MJ Starr had been released from the jail three days before this car was stolen. He was spotted in Boise with another known jailbird named Tom Rock who had served several stints in jail for one, issuing checks without funds in 1923, two, forgery, 1924, three, stealing a car from the drive-it-yourself dealership in Boise in 1925. <laughs> I tried so hard to find a photo of this. Four, he followed that up with a charge of illegal cohabitation that same year, so. Big draws right there. Um, Boise police had an idea that MJ Starr and Tom Rock may have been involved in the endeavor, and so they contacted authorities east from Boise all the way down the line uh, to keep an eye out. And one of the articles actually noted, quote, one of them described as being about five feet, eight inches tall, slender, and a dark complexion, is said to have been decorated with a black eye as a result of a fistic encounter, end quote. <laughs> Sam knows a thing or two about this. <laughs> yeah, I love the term fistic encounter. <laughs> Sam is a boxer, just so everybody knows. <laughs> there have been many a time where he's had guts and gashes, and it's like, oh my gosh. Uh, From fistic encounters. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so over the weekend, three men were spotted by a night watchman attempting to hop a train. Police rushed in and arrested them, and they gave their names as Tom Rock, Jack Cochran and John Davis. When they arrived in Boise, it was apparent that John Davis was in fact MJ Starr. They initially uh, denied being involved, but uh, yes, you can see his little shiner there. Um, but Tom Rock flipped and pled guilty. He confessed to the whole crime and was charged with grand larceny and sentenced to not less than one year nor more than 14 years in the Idaho State Penitentiary. MJ Starr, seeing his partner charged uh, changed his plea, and uh, he was also charged with the same crime. And their partner, the other fella, Jack Cochran, was actually Everett Baird, and he was just a 19-year-old kid. It was his first 
encounter, first arrest. They actually just put him on parole, and he got off in December the next year, and, and I never saw any arrest record or anything for him ever again. So good slap on the wrist, kept him out of trouble. Now the intake. So Tom Rock, his alias was H.G. McCormick, number 3786. His crime was grand larceny. He was 24 years old. As that record said, he's 5 feet, 8 inches, 143 pounds. Uh, he had a regular build, black hair, blue-gray eyes, medium complexion. He was born in Silver City. His occupation, he was a miner, and he was, was received at the prison on June 4th, 1927. And his on these are these little figurines where the, the warden would have you strip, and he'd draw any extra, you know, features, tattoos, moles, scars. Uh, it showed that he had a spread eagle and 1923 on his left forearm, and he had small cuts on his left hand and his right forearm. And MJ Starr, his true name was actually MJ Lewis, but he actually noted in his documents that he's known in Oregon uh, as Jack W. Lewis. And so um, I think this makes sense when you hear about his occupation. Uh, his crime, of course, grand larceny. He's 23 years old. He's five feet, seven and one inch inches tall, 141 pounds. He had a regular build, medium complexion. He said he was born July 6th, 1904 in California. He was a horse trainer and a jockey. So MJ Starr is a pretty cool jockey name, I imagine. <laughs> uh, he was received in Ada County on June 6, 1927. And his Bertion showed that he had an American flag on his left forearm, much like Tom Rock's spread eagle. And he also had uh, two hearts and a dagger on the back of his left forearm and another dagger with something written on it that I could not read this warden's handwriting. I don't know what it said, but something there. Uh, Starr wrote a letter to the Board of Pardons in September 1928 that kind of showed his honesty. This is one of my favorite, favorite openings. Quote, I'm going to make no rash promises. <laughs> <laughs> Although I intend to stick strictly to the straight and narrow trail hereafter, and the Honorable Board of Pardons as a whole, and the members of the board as individuals can be assured that in the future you will have no cause to regret any action in my favor at this time. End quote. And the board denied his parole that fall. <laughs> but they approved it in March 1929. While, and while on parole, he actually wrote regularly to the board and didn't get in any trouble. And uh, only one thing arrived. It was a little telegram from Twin Falls from the sheriff to the warden asking, hey, can you send me some details about this guy? So he's under investigation. The warden just wrote back, quote, is car thief and pretty sure thing gambler, end quote. But, <laughs> I didn't see any arrest record or any uh, break of his parole. He was never entered back into the prison. Um, now, Tom Rock, he actually applied for pardon at every single opportunity. As I mentioned, he had quite the lengthy career, quite the, the amount of time in, in the local county jail. About nine months into his sentence, he wrote to the State Board of Pardons asking for a conditional pardon so he could take care of his mother who was, quote, getting old and is badly crippled with rheumatism, end quote. Uh, she had been widowed. His brother had been taking care of her, but his brother was in Havana, Cuba, working at a utility company, and he was trying to raise his own family. So he's sending all this money back to take care of their mom, and it's just becoming too much. And so he... Uh, Tom Rock writes to the board and he says, quote, I would like to pay redacted uh, Richard Richardson, favorite name, the party from whom I appropriated the car, <laughs> appropriated <laughs> and wrecked <laughs> um, my share by buying him a new car 
for the one damaged. At that time, I was not in a position where I could do that, but if I was released from prison, I would gladly do what is right by doing my share in buying him a new car." End quote. And he noted that he had learned his lesson, he would never break the law again, and he had a job lined up in the mine in Pearl, Idaho. That's a good time right there. <laughs> Later that year, on September 15, 1928, Tom Rock was released on parole, and I found mentions of him being picked up and questioned in different places around Idaho, but there's no evidence he was ever sentenced to prison again, so he actually made good on his word. And with that, I want to encourage all of you to enjoy your, your tree fort and uh, lock your cars. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> thank you so much. I'm going to turn it over here to Mr. Sam. <laughs> Well, thank you, Anthony. I, um, yeah, I, I would love to see uh, that just the description of all of the characters, mm -hmm. all of the different people going into the 1919 uh, Music Week. Like, can you even imagine? It, it sounds so festive and fun. Yeah, I, I just love that there's still so many representations of those different diverse cultures that still come together for things like, you know, like, like Dream Fort right now. It's, it's pretty amazing. Our Basque, you know, community yeah. is still so present and prominent in our downtown, which is amazing. Yeah, it uh, makes, makes concerts more fun. That's for sure. Sources today, uh, newspapers.com, Ancestry, Family Search, Find a Grave. Since this crime did take place in Treasure Valley, Idaho statesmen covered it extensively. And of course, uh, his prison file, which we are so lucky to have access to. So on December 20th, 1902, Len Douglas turned himself over to the sheriff for murder and then gave a pretty straightforward story of what happened. Len and Rufus Ayers both fancied the same young lady. Their rivalry for her affection finally boiled over into violence. After a country dance the two men were attending, they stepped outside to settle things once and for all. Rufus pulled his gun first and fired twice, missing both times. Len, with perfect aim, fired and killed Rufus with one bullet to the head. Well, Len's account to the sheriff was technically true, with most of those details later being verified by many witnesses, it would not be until the trial of the following year that the entire story was revealed. It turns out there were some important details left out of that first explanation, raising serious questions as to whether the murder was in self-defense or in cold blood. Mary Douglas gave birth to Len, her 10th child, in Clay County, Missouri in 1877. On December 18th, Len ended up having a total of 13 other siblings, all of whom were quite close. The family moved to Idaho in 1880, and by 1902, Len went to work as a shepherd. But in December of that same year, he learned that his brother Charles had accidentally been shot. His mother wrote to Len, saying the family needed him more than the sheep did, and so Len left the ranch and headed for home. In, <laughs> I love that. The, um, I, I guess priorities, right? Yeah. In addition to providing help to his family, it also allowed him to return home for his 25th birthday, the holidays, as well as a winter dance. On his arrival, Len discovered his sister Mary planned to host a dance later that month. Mary Potter, the wife of Tom Potter, had a fondness for country dances. The couple had held a very successful summer ball the previous year, and 
This time they decided to host a winter dance. Country dances were a big deal in the 1900s, and the star community only got more excited as the dance approached. Len knew exactly who he wanted to invite to go with him. Myrtle Mary White, the oldest daughter of Frank and Luella Mary White's 12 children. The Whites were both respected and known for their successful ranch. Frank applied to expand the ranch by 160 additional acres earlier that year, but the local men were less interested in White's vast land as they were by the rancher's daughter. <laughs> for some time, Len had had his eye on the 19-year-old Myrtle White, but when he asked if he and his brother could escort her and her 15-year-old sister Frankie to the dance, she outright refused. Frustrated and probably a little embarrassed, Len began to try and come up with a plan B for his date. Len decided instead to attend the festivities with some girls he planned on bringing from Nampa. So on December 19th, the day of the dance, Len and his 31-year-old brother John went to Nampa. He brought his gun, a 38 caliber Colt revolver, explaining that since he planned on escorting the girls back home late at night, he wanted to be able to protect them in case they ran into any trouble. But it turns out the girls thought Len was the trouble. <laughs> While it's unclear why the ladies of Nampa turned him down, Len suspected that Rufus Ayers had been spreading rumors which damaged the reputation of both him and his family. Rufus Ayers, the youngest of eight siblings and only 22 years old, knew Len all too well. Now, after the gunfight, the bad blood not only between Len and Rufus, but between the entire Douglas and Ayers clan became a hot topic. It's hard to know how much stock to put in these rumors, but many community members felt the families were on very hostile terms. Whatever feelings of anger Len must have been feeling on that trip back to Star were only amplified by the fact that the woman he wanted to attend the dance with the most, Myrtle, already had a date. Myrtle was planning on being escorted to the event by Rufus. Oh boy. Len arrived back at Mary Potter's house between 3 and 4 p.m. to help her set up for the dance. Since Len had successfully helped assist his sister with previous events, she assigned him to act as the floor manager for the ball. The witnesses at the court trial gave very similar accounts of what happened, with only a few small variations in detail. However, those details are pretty important as to determining the motivation behind the killing. The family reported that when he got home, Len went to Mary with his gun and said, Mary, here, put this away. <laughs> After which she stored it in an upper shelf of the kitchen. However, there were contrary reports that Len arrived to the house as mad as a bull, and Tom Potter, fearing a fight, made Len give him his gun. Meanwhile, Rufus was not unaware of Len's feelings towards him. He brought a 22 caliber nickel-plated revolver for protection. Afterwards, there were claims that he showed off the weapon and proclaimed, See this? I'm carrying this for Len Douglas. I'm gonna get that blank blank blank. <laughs> I don't care how long it takes. However, it's unclear as to whether or not he actually said this. Did it actually say blank, blank, blank in the newspaper? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually not editing that. The newspapers didn't, didn't put the words, I have an assumption, but, but for uh, historical accuracy, I'm just going to go with blank, blank, blank for now. Either way, when the dance began at 8 p.m., Len seemed to have cooled off significantly. 
Rufus arrived promptly, escorting Myrtle and Frankie White. Rufus was not actually attending the event to dance, but rather he was one of the musicians in the band. Despite the tensions, the country ball got off to a great start, and everyone in attendance seemed to be having a grand old time. Oh, musicians. Rufus decided he wanted to take a break from playing in order to get a dance in with his date, but he had not purchased the ticket for the event. He found Len, the floor manager, and asked permission to go dance. Len did allow this since custom allowed the musician to dance without being required to pay. The two men both were very polite and friendly during the interaction, even described as joshing or joking around with one another before Rufus went off to find his date. Rufus, of course, was not the only one to dance with Myrtle. Throughout the evening, other young men asked her to dance, including Len. While earlier she refused his offer to accompany her to the event, she did permit him two dances throughout the evening. Of course, she spent as much time as she could with Rufus, who managed to sneak away from the band enough times to get four dances in with his sweetheart. Throughout the event, Mary served dinner in the kitchen. Towards the end of the night, Myrtle, getting food or perhaps just taking a little break from dancing, stepped out of the ballroom and into the kitchen. Len found her there, and together they talked for a few minutes. She asked him, Why haven't you a partner for the dance? Douglas told her, I would have one if it were not for some blank, blank, blank <laughs> around here who'd been lying about me. This, of course, is 1903, and there were well-established rules of etiquette and manners, especially when it came to courting. Foul language in front of a young woman was far more scandalous back then than it is now. The prosecution brought up the cursing and the defense denied it again and again throughout the entire trial. Myrtle, while on the stand, explained that she resented the way he talked to her, and she told him this that night by responding, I'm used to being talked to differently. I consider myself a lady and wish to be treated as one. He replied, since when? <laughs> she responded, long before I knew you. <laughs> Len and Myrtle were seen arguing for five minutes in the kitchen. Rufus stepped in to check on his date, and the tense friendliness between the men quickly dissipated. The men's argument grew until they decided to step outside. As the words grew to yelling, Rufus put his hand on the six-shooter on his hip. Suddenly, Len stepped forward and punched Rufus, who staggered backwards. The men exchanged several punches, with the older Len getting in the better hits. Rufus called out for help, quote, Take him off, boys! I'm not man enough to lick him! But the witnesses were unable to fully <laughs> separate the fighting men. I know, uh, to, to, to lick him has different context now. Uh, finally, Rufus unholstered his gun and fired two shots. This sent the unhurt Len stumbling backwards. He ran around the house and into the kitchen. Rufus went to fire a third shot when Joe Potter stepped in, grabbing Rufus's hand and forcing the weapon down. As Len ran away, Rufus yelled after him, This ain't over yet. Once Len stepped back inside the house, he demanded, Give me my gun. He shot first. Tom Potter, who now possessed Len's gun, refused. Len overpowered him, taking the gun and running back out. On the other side of the house, Rufus walked in, yelling, I ain't gonna stand for this. Joe told him he needed to go and 
now. Things were escalating too fast, and the safest thing they could do is just have everyone leave. Rufus relented, and he went to the front door just as Len hurried around the back side of the house. As Len stepped onto the front porch, he said, All right, I will go home. As he finished those words, Rufus shot him through the left eye. As, as Rufus fell to the ground, Len walked past him and back into the house, saying, Go pack him in. I've done it. I tell you I'm no man to be fooled with. He informed his family he intended to head to Boise to give himself up to Sheriff J.D. Daly. Inside the front room, Mary Potter, Frankie, and Myrtle White were all crying. Just before he left, he turned to the young women in the room and told them, Don't cry over that. Blank, blank, blank. <laughs> It is now 3.30 a.m., and Len Douglas did in fact ride his horse straight to Boise to turn himself in. Potter walked a very distraught Frankie and Myrtle back home. Dr. Stewart arrived to provide medical attention to Rufus, but found little he could do on behalf of the young man. The Weezer semi-weekly signal reported, quote, The physician stated that there was small chance of his recovery. The ball entered just inside the left eyeball, ranged upward and backward, and going through the right lobe of the brain and passing out through the right parietal bone. The doctor proved to be correct, and Rufus died just over 12 hours later at 4 p.m. on December 20th. The sheriff also arrested John Douglas for his participation in the murder, and the two brothers spent the holiday in the Boise jail. Some of the witnesses reported that Len helped get the gun from Tom, and he'd also brawled with Rufus before the shooting. John appeared to the authorities as sharing some of the responsibility for the murder. Both families had many friends in the community, and on February 12th, when the trial officially began, the townsfolk packed into the courtroom. The newspaper claimed, quote, Every inch of available space was utilized, and many were forced to stand in the hall, lead into the room, and await an opportunity to gain admittance upon someone's exit. J. H. Hawley and Charles F. Neal acted as the prosecuting attorneys. J. J. Blake and C. C. Coven led the defense. Judge Charles F. Kosher oversaw the proceedings. The boys were tried separately, with most of the news coverage focused on Len's trial. John's charges were eventually dismissed. Throughout the trial, the father of the victim, Joseph Ayers, and the parents of the defense, Robert and Mary, were in attendance. Len's mother, Mary, sat by his side for the following days, quiet, distraught, and occasionally shedding silent tears. For the following week, a multitude of witnesses testified and were cross-examined, with the majority of their stories lining up perfectly. But there were a few minor details that could not be agreed upon. For example, when Rufus shot his gun, did he aim to kill? Some thought Rufus pointed the barrel of the gun slightly up, indicating that they were warning shots as opposed to an attempt on Len's life. The court also held discussion about the way Rufus exited the house. Did he see Len before being shot? Had Rufus placed a hand on the, the gun he wore on his hip? The doctor testified the bolt's trajectory was evident of going up through the brain, evident from the wound, which does make sense since the porch was higher than the ground outside. 
Len claimed that he'd shot Rufus when Rufus advanced outside with his hand on his gun. But the defense speculated that when Rufus stepped from the brightly lit house into the dark night, he did not see Len waiting in the shadows with his gun. Both sides investigated the long hatred between the family. With extensive time taken to look at the various threats both men supposedly made towards each other. But, in spite of this, many individuals were willing to act as character witnesses for both Rufus and Len, describing them each as hardworking, peaceable, and not prone to violence. Prosecutor Hawley used Len's demeanor during the fight against him. Quote, Douglas, instead of being scared and excited during the altercation, was cool and collected, and intent upon wreaking his revenge and hatred upon Ayers. Both sides attacked Myrtle White, who found herself in the middle of the courtroom crossfire, as the nature of her relationship with both boys became a key arguing point. The prosecution attempted to make her seem but a damsel, who dissuaded and refuted all attempts of Len's advances. Yet this older, rougher man continued to try and court her, despite her explicit disinterest. The defense, however, claimed that both men were involved with Myrtle who they painted as a temptress and a flirt, who fanned the flames of the men's hostile feelings in hopes that they would fight over her for her own personal entertainment. The paper described J.J. Blake as, quote, bitterly excoriated Myrtle White for the part she played in the tragedy. The defense did everything in their power to put the blame of Rufus's death squarely at her feet. After a week-long trial and five hours of impassioned arguing, the very divided jury finally compromised and returned with a verdict of guilty of manslaughter, and the judge sentenced Len to 10 years in prison. The Idaho State Penitentiary received Len Douglas on February 19, 1903. On his Bertillion, the prison described him as five feet, nine inches tall, with a light complexion. He weighed 165 pounds with light hair and blue eyes. He did have religious instruction as a Christian, but he had not been attending church. He could read and write and had a common school education, attending for 10 years. He admitted to being a moderate drinker. His teeth were fair, only missing one back molar. He had no beard, wore a size 9 boot. The prison gave Len Douglas the number 903. We don't know a lot about his time in prison, but one thing we do know, Len did recognize one face when he arrived. Al Douglas, age 16, Len's older brother, was already incarcerated at the site and a few years into a 20-year sentence. Len also arrived during the construction of Two House and possibly contributed to the building efforts, or more likely with the prison's livestock due to his experience on the ranch. Either way, it's likely Len practiced good behavior because only three years later, on July 2nd, 1906, the pardon board paroled Len Douglas. Three years later, they pardoned him and gave him back full citizenship. Just leave your guns at home when you go out to a dance. (laughs) Uh, Just like the Johnny Cash song. (laughs) For a time, Len continued to work as a shepherd here in Boise. In 1912, Len married Mary Emmeline Cornwell from Emmett, Idaho. And for those of you counting, that is the fifth Mary who we've discussed in our story today. (laughs) Apparently it was a popular name. (laughs) Together they moved to Jim, Idaho, with Len working as a rancher in Idaho City. 
Their life they shared together had ups and downs. Two of their five children tragically passed away in their infancy. But through the good times and bad times, the couple stuck together. In 1946, at the age of 68, Len Douglas passed away from pancreatic cancer. His family buried him in Emmett, Idaho. By all accounts, it appears that Len did try and go straight, never committing a serious crime again in Idaho. His widow, Mary, would never remarry. As for Myrtle White, seven years after the murder of her date in Star, Idaho, she married Henry M. Slosher. Eight years later, in 1918, at the age of 35, Myrtle passed away from liver cancer and was buried in Nampa. Frankie White, on the other hand, married Monty C. Morgan in 1908. Together they had two children, and Frankie passed away in 1962 at the age of 75. Finally, we have the Ayers family. Rufus's mother had died six years prior to her son's murder, but his father, Joseph, outlived his son by 15 years, dying in 1917 at the age of 84. As for Rufus, who never saw his 23rd birthday, he is buried with his mother in the Star Idaho Cemetery. Great work, Sam. That's a... Uh quite the story. Did you ever find out what instrument he played? No, I, I, I looked, I looked, I really wanted to know. Um, you know, it could have been a fiddle, a banjo, or a guitar. Probably um, a banjo player. Yeah, yeah hard, hard to know. Um, hard to know, I, I really wish. I, I know he, I believe it's indicated that, that he performed in the summer ball that yeah. the Potters held the previous year. Wow, man. Yeah. Wow. Well, great work, and with that, we are open seven days a week. Please come visit the Old Pen if you haven't already. And we have some Behind Gray Wall stickers and guitar picks available right up here at the front of the stage. Please help yourself to those. Thank you all so much for coming. Happy Tree Fort. Be safe. Leave your guns at home. Lock your cars. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good one, everybody. Do your own time. Do your own number. Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.